name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So everybody had a great afternoon, reflection, quiet, and prayer. Ready for our fourth talk today, to wrap up the night. Earlier this afternoon, we looked at how happiness, joy, cheerfulness was integral to the Christian life. We are called to be happy people. We're called to be joyful people in the resurrection. We talked about towards the end how that can be difficult sometimes whenever we are suffering or going through darkness and trials to maintain that joyful attitude, to be able to smile at others and lift them up. And so that's what we're going to talk a little bit about today, how to be able to receive well and to allow these trials and sufferings to transform us rather than to bring us down and destroy us. And so the quote we're going to talk about comes from Teresa of Avila again. Now, she's speaking about something very specific, about the soul that whenever it receives graces because of pride, because of pride can often go in the wrong direction, can misuse these graces. But what we're going to try to do is take this quote and apply it more in general, and I think specifically, though, to this issue of the grace, if you will, of sufferings and trials. So she says that whenever the soul receives these graces, this food, and misuses it, the soul becomes like the spider, which turns all its food into poison, instead of resembling the bee, which turns it into honey. So this is sort of, I think, a fairly well-known analogy of Teresa of Avila, the spider and the bee. Both of them receive food, whether it be the graces that she's talking about, the favors God gives, or the food, let's say, of sufferings and trials, the food of whatever comes on a day-to-day basis. And how we receive it, we can receive it either as the spider and turn it into poison and allow it to make us become bitter and hateful and destructive, or like the bee, to receive it and to produce something beautiful, good and sweet, to produce honey. So I, I was an English major and a philosophy minor in college. I'm not a biologist by any means, but I sort of did some research to prepare for this about how exactly both spiders and bees make either their poison or their honey. Bees are very, very fascinating, and there are so many books and journals written about the lives of bees. Basically, you have the worker bees that go out and they collect the nectar from the different flowers, and they bring it back to the hive. And other bees that live in the hive come and they receive the nectar and they chew it up, spit it out into the different little holes in the comb. And they deposit there and with their wings they fan it out and when it dries, this sort of processed nectar becomes honey. And they cover it with wax and save the honey. That's how honey is made. Spiders, on the other hand, do something a little different. I learned a distinction that many of you may know. Teresa calls it poison, but it's technically not poison. We technically use the word venom. We're not going to get mad at Teresa of Avila for this. 
Venom is something that's injected into another. Poison is something that's absorbed or ingested. So if you have a poisonous frog, you can touch it and get sick. You can lick it and get really sick, but it's not going to inject it into you. So you wouldn't say it's a venomous frog. However, you would say a spider with its fangs are venomous. Well, the spider has venom-producing glands. The glands produce the venom. goes down to tubes that end up in the fangs that act sort of as needles. And the spider will inject its victim with the venom, and the venom will paralyze the victim. And the spider will then normally wrap the victim up in, in its spider web and then eventually liquefy it and then eat it. Not that pleasant of a way to go. Anyhow, herbology is not perfect, but you get the message. And we're going to come back to this, though, a little bit more later on as we begin to explore it and try to understand it. We all face things in life, situations, things that are difficult, things that are easy. God sends us trials. God sends us graces and blessings. Everything we receive ultimately comes as a gift from the hand of the Lord. He either directly permits it, he directly makes it happen, or he permits it to happen. That's part of finding peace, learning to accept the present moment, to accept all things is coming from God. Specifically, though, whenever we receive blessings and joy, we love it. It's not a problem, even though maybe those blessings could make us prideful. But it's whenever we receive trials, sufferings. Whenever Jesus wants us to pick up the cross, that's when things get a bit more difficult. And that's when we are tempted to turn those trials into poison, to become like the spider, and to create poison that is bitter and destructive. Or, the real challenge then, is what we want is to become like the bee to take these trials, to take these sufferings, and become sweet and gentle, life-giving, not bitter and hard, bringing death. So the goal is, no matter what comes, whatever food we receive from the hand of the Lord, we want to be like the bees so that we can face the trials and sufferings properly and produce honey from them. So. Ladies, we all have our crosses, and over the course of the past several talks, you see that I like to list things out. So as I was praying and preparing for this, I thought of a handful of crosses that we tend to encounter, particularly I find sometimes women tend to encounter. There could be a lot more, and through your own prayer, you're going to know what cross, what trial or suffering you may be going through. The first that we talk about is something that I see is very, very prevalent, and that, particularly in women, is neglect and abuse, particularly the horrible crime of sexual abuse. Many, many women, particularly when they were young, verbally, physically, sexually abused, potentially neglected by a father who was an alcoholic or a mother who had a severe mental disorder, a split in the family, potentially being bullied at school. Whatever it is, 
in those very formative young years when we need to receive the Lord's love to be affirmed in our existence from our family members and from others, we don't receive that. And as a result, the damage that can be done to the body, more significantly damage can be done to the psyche and to the heart. And so as we talked about, victims of abuse will often live with terrible shame, hatred of themselves, which can manifest itself in self-destructive behavior from sexual promiscuity, drug and alcohol abuse, or even self-mutilation. All of that feeling of being unloved. Because that's what happens. If we're abused when we're young, we're basically told, you're not worth anything. You're not lovable. And then we begin to believe that lie about ourselves, that we're unlovable, and from that lie, evil fruit comes forth. We can allow the anger, the bitterness, and the unforgiveness to be able to get into our hearts, and it changes us. It makes us sick. Is it our fault that we were abused? No, not at all. We can overcome that, but still abuse has a terrible effect and is a cross in so many people's, particularly women's lives. The second thing is sort of stemming from that, difficulty in families. Yes, difficulty in our families when we were growing up, but more specifically, difficulty in our families here and now. We have a husband who doesn't go to church. We have one who's an alcoholic or drug addict. A husband maybe who's lost his job and has turned to drinking and it's not really being the provider for the family. See, a lot of women struggle with that. Of course, it's their obligation to confess it in confession, not your obligation, but still, we understand the pain that comes from that. And also with our children, children who stray away from the church, children who maybe get involved in drugs and alcohol, children who are caught up in a bad marriage or an abusive relationship, Children who are ungrateful and unthankful. We go down the list. These are the pains that come on the mother's heart in particular. Wanting to help the children, not wanting to suffer as a result of it, but still feeling tremendous pain in their heart. And that's the breakdown of the family. And we want the Lord to fix it. But yet it can cause tremendous suffering, quite often because we feel that it's our fault. If I would have been more loving, or if I would have taught the children better, then they wouldn't have strayed. Again, that may be the case, but we always have free will. Young people are going to tend to stray away if they want. The third thing is weakness. Our own, the, the cross of our own human weakness and fallenness. Our own frailty and particularly our struggle with sin, whether it be large sin or small sin. I tell you the times that people have come to me, Father, I've been confessing this, whether it be pride or gossip or lust, for, for 20 years, and it's still there. And there's an expectation that it's going to go away. Well, you know what? Maybe the Lord will allow it to go away. But guess what? Something else is going to pop up in its place. There's this idea that if we continue on our journey, all of a sudden one day we're going to wake up and we're the Blessed Virgin Mary, and we don't sin. Granted, we can hope to grow in holiness. We can hope to grow. We leave behind mortal sin. But as I sort of said before, sometimes the sin that we commit 
rooted in our own self-image and pain from the past. Not that I'm making an excuse for it. It can lessen culpability, but we are fallen creatures. We've been hurt by others. We've made self-destructive choices, but we come into this world fallen with concupiscence. And so we're talking about people, not about people who, who, who want to keep sinning, who don't care. We're talking about people such as yourselves who want to come on a retreat, who go to confession and can be frustrated by their sin, whether it be habitual sin or maybe a sin they committed in the past or maybe something large they're struggling with now. And they feel that tremendous shame, that tremendous struggle about being weak and this idea that somehow God has rejected them. The Lord doesn't want to have anything to do with them because they are so filthy and dirty. Number four, and this is probably the most typical one, is physical suffering. Whether it be that maybe we have some disease, that dreaded day when you go to the doctor and he says that you have cancer. It could be the physical suffering that comes with getting older, arthritis setting into our limbs, our bodies not working as they ought to or as they used to, having to spend time at the doctors, our back hurting, our feet hurting, big suffering and small suffering. All of these things can drag us down and can lead to uh, sort of a tremendous mental drain and an emotional suffering. This is the cross, the cross that we often have to carry in our bodies. You know, we, we, we have bodies, we have nerve receptors, we can feel that physical pain. And as much as we'd like it to draw us closer to Jesus, Lord, I'm, I want to configure myself to you on the cross. Sometimes it's not easy. We prefer to stay in bed or grumble to complain about how hard things are rather than pick up our cross of joy. And then fifth and finally, something that Teresa of Avila knew well, is the cross of the suffering of spiritual darkness and aridity. Now we're talking about individuals who are growing in the spiritual life. And the Lord is allowing to, to encounter the dark night of the senses or potentially the dark night of the soul. These things are purifying where we feel the Lord is very, very distant. We feel our prayer is hollow. We feel that we are tremendous sinners and nothing that we can do would make God happy. And this is something that if you read John of the Cross or Teresa of Avila, you'll understand. Therese went through it in the last few months of her life. We feel that God has abandoned us and it's very easy to say, well, I'm not feeling anything or I feel miserable, I'm giving it up. It's very hard to persevere because depending on how much we need to be purified, this can be a very, very intense and painful process, probably even more painful than stuff that we would have in our bodies. So these are the types of sufferings we're talking about. And I'm sure most everyone in here, something I've said maybe resonates in their life, that you've encountered one or maybe various of these types of sufferings. Maybe there's something I didn't mention, but that you're thinking about, the suffering that's afflicting you. And that's what we really want to focus on. Because we receive the suffering, we receive these trials, no matter what form they come in, and we have two options. The first is to become like the bee. The bee who receives this food and transforms it into honey. No matter what trials there are, no matter how bad of a day you might be having, we're still able to maintain that joy, 
still able to maintain that peace and that love for others, that somehow the suffering transforms us. We're able to still share in the joy of the resurrection. But some people, and, and who knows why exactly, can receive the same exact type of suffering, the same exact type of trials, and they become like the spider. It becomes venomous, poison, not only in their own lives, where their heart tends to constrict. They don't know how to love. They complain. They can become very, very cynical because of that suffering, and they can make the lives of other people miserable also. You know, I often, as a priest, you, you get to work with people uh, who are older, and to be able to see that, the ones who are older and kind and gentle and loving, and the ones who are older and kind of grumpy and unpleasant. And we thought to think to ourselves, what, what am I going to be like when I get to be that age? And I really hope, well, I hope that I have that pleasant, kind, loving nature that comes from years of cooperating with God's grace in order to be more like the bee than the spider. So, what's the difference? Well, the difference is this response to the Lord's grace. Because no matter what trial that he gives to us, no matter what suffering comes along the way, he's going to give us the grace, the blessing, for us to be able to allow it to transform us and not destroy us. But we've got to be willing to receive that grace. I think also, too, as we've been talking about, a deep awareness of the Lord's love. Therese suffered tremendously in her body and in her soul, but she was so aware of the Lord's love that she could rejoice at what happened, what was going on, that she saw it as coming from the hands of the Lord. She could even still laugh and joke about it. And that's the key, is the grace, but really that grace of knowing the Lord's love for us and that willingness and ability to love others. But I think the real key is what we've really been talking about, is knowing the risen Lord and the joy of the resurrection. And having that spirit, the Holy Spirit, poured out upon us. It's the Lord's cross. He passed from the cross to the resurrection. We've got to do the same thing, sometimes in small ways, sometimes in large ways, so that we could pass through the cross and to be able to share the joy of the resurrection, knowing that no matter how bad things get, Jesus is still in control. That's why it's so beautiful, the divine mercy prayer. Jesus, I trust in you. No matter how bad it seems, no matter how much suffering there is, Jesus, I trust in you. So that, that's ultimately, it's God who has to give us the grace, who has to propel us in that right direction to give us what's necessary to be able to transform these things into honey and not become the bitter venomous spider. It's not what we want. But we've got to cooperate with that grace. We have to respond to it. And so I've come up with a handful of things that I believe that we can do in responding to the Lord's grace and the gift and face of these trials to not allow ourselves to become spiders, but instead to become bees. The first and most important is learning to forgive. Forgive those who have hurt us. Sometimes we may need to forgive God, even though God doesn't need to be forgiven because we blame him for things. 
Forgive ourselves, whatever it is, that gift of forgiveness. Because what happens is, particularly when others have hurt us, not so much our enemies, but really our friends who betrayed us, our family members who have abused or let us down, we can allow that anger and that pain and that, that justification that we need to stand up for what's right to eat at our hearts and our souls. And so we need to learn to forgive. A lot of times at the human level, it takes an understanding that the person who is the abuser was often abused themselves, that they were suffering, and therefore they inflicted it upon us. Not that it justifies their behavior, but it helps us to be more merciful. Sort of like Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That should be our prayer too. And so we should pray, Lord, give me the grace of forgiveness. Give me the grace to be able to be merciful to others. And we've got to be persistent in that prayer. Sometimes wounds can be so big or we can be so sensitive that we have to pray to want to want to want to want to want to forgive. And sometimes we may have to do that for months, if not years, but we cannot give up on that. We have to trust the Lord is going to give us that grace. And one of the keys, though, is if we want to forgive someone, we've got to be willing to receive mercy ourselves. Remember, Jesus is going to forgive us in accord to the way that we forgive others. But if we can go and receive God's mercy and know how much he's forgiven me, just like that parable of the steward who, who the Lord forgave him the debt, but he went out and was mean to someone who owed him much less. The point is that we realize how much he's forgiven us, it's going to be easier for us to forgive others. It's going to be easier for us to forgive others. I'll give one last thing that is the real key to helping with forgiveness. And we could sit and pray for forgiveness all we want. We can say we forgive. But sometimes, like, I forgive that person, but I sure hope they suffer. I forgive that person, but I wish they get hit by a car. But I still hope forgive them. A priest taught me the great key to overcoming our pains and our hurts and finding healing is not just to pray for forgiveness, but to actively bless the persons who've hurt us. To say, I forgive you, but you know what, Lord? I want that person who did this horrible thing to me to receive the biggest blessing from you. I want you to make them happy. I want you to give them a great family. I want you to give them wealth and riches. I want you to give them the blessings that you might have given to me. That's a hard prayer to pray. But if we can do that, it opens the space for really being able to forgive others. The second key for learning to transform our day-to-day -day struggles and trials into honey and not poison is learning to be thankful. Thankful. That's cultivating an attitude of realizing everything that we have, everything we have is a gift. We didn't deserve it. And to be able to every day say, Lord, I thank you for the great gift. Whether it be the gift of life, the gift of a beautiful day, the gift of a great retreat, or the gift of small things, you know, the beautiful flower that you see, someone who smiled at you on the way to work, whatever it is. And so it's easy to be thankful for that, but we've got to be able to build up a habit. But the challenge now is to be thankful even for the bad things, to know that the Lord has permitted it. That no matter what happens, the Lord has permitted it, and there can be some great good that comes from it. And so to be able, at the end of the day, Lord, you know, I thank you that my sciatica was flaring up. 
Lord, I want to thank you that Father's homily was long and boring. Father, I want to thank you that my bed was uncomfortable. Whatever it is. And we may not mean it. We may not be as thankful as the, the wonderful meal that we might have had. But still, what it does, it begins to build up an attitude where it becomes a habit, where we find ourselves thanking God throughout the day. So what I normally suggest is, you know, maybe having a little journal at the end of the day, five things you're thankful for. And at least one of them has to be something that stinks. Something that you wouldn't normally want to thank God for. And to thank him for that, to be able to see how his blessings work through that. And we see it in the lives of the saints. And in particular, I go back to Therese. Therese never lost that attitude of gratitude. That no matter what happened, she saw it as coming from the hands of her beloved spouse. Number three, this is crucial. We want to be able to be bees and not spiders. We've got to learn to let go of control. Or at least the illusion of control. And again, we, we want to control things around us. Part of the reason that we let these things bother us because we should be in control. My life should be perfect. I shouldn't have any suffering at all. And we allow it to disturb our peace, which is a normal thing to happen. We've got to be able to let go. The analogy I often use is imagine that you plan a beautiful picnic. And you've got your wine and your food and your sandwiches and you're going out. And as you're going out, the clouds come and it begins to rain. Your picnic is ruined. What do you do? Well, most people might be disappointed, but you're not going to let it ruin your day. You're not going to let it ruin your life. Why? Because you can't control the weather. Well, if you can't, not going to get mad at the weather you can't control, why do you get mad at your friend that you can't control? Why do you get mad at the cancer that you can't control? Why do you let all these situations you can't control bother you? It's normal. I'm not saying that we shouldn't, but we let it destroy our peace. The problem is here, not there. We can be angry and we can be sad and we can have our normal reactions, but a big part of it is we want to control. Lord, grant me the serenity to accept the things that I cannot change. We've got to be able to realize there are certain things that we can't. And a lot of the times, the sufferings that happen, our past, things that were done to us, we can't change. And to say, Lord, I can't control it. I'm giving it to you. Does it mean that it didn't happen? Does it mean that wrong didn't happen? Does it mean that the suffering will, poof, magically go away? We're not Buddhists. We don't believe in that. The suffering's there, but we're able to handle it better because we said, Lord, I'm giving it over to you. You are in control. Number four, and this came to me as I was reading a bit more about spiders and, and bees. Notice this. I don't know, maybe you've never noticed it. I never noticed it until I did a little studying. Bees live in community. Bees live in these big, massive hives. They work together, they communicate. In fact, they actually have sort of a democracy if you pay attention to how bees work. Spiders generally don't. Spiders generally are hanging off in the corner by themselves waiting to bite you. That's generally what they are. There are very few types of spiders that live together in a community. Probably thankful because we would freak out if like a bunch of tarantulas lived together, I would really freak out. Also, notice that what the bee produces, the honey, 
The honey is actually there for the little, little larvae, but actually honey is good. Honey is something that builds up. It's sweet. It provides food for others. What does the spider do with his venom and his food? Just for himself. Just for himself. He's not taking it and giving it to anybody else. It's ultimately very selfish. So that's the fourth thing. In looking at the spider and the bee, we cannot isolate ourselves. If we isolate ourselves, apart from friends, apart from family, apart from a believing community, then we're going to end up like the spider. That's the natural thing. When we start having that suffering and the depression and that sadness, we want to close ourselves up. And all it does is spiral down and become much, much worse. We need to be open to community. Giving and receiving love. That's what we've been talking about for the course of the past couple of days. We're created to give. But if you're locked up like a spider, you ain't got nobody to give yourself to. And then we need to receive that love from God, but particularly the love that comes from our family and friends, from those in our parish, to receive that. I mean, I know you've all experienced that you're having a very, very bad day, you're suffering, you're miserable, and then you go to some party or some gathering or some dinner or a mass, and people talk to you after mass, and all of a sudden y'all are visiting, and it just goes away. You forget about it. You feel loved and affirmed. Do not be like the spider. We are like the bees created to live in community and produce fruit that benefits the community rather than destroys it. And then fifth and finally, and of course probably Teresa of Avila is mad at me by this time because I keep talking about Therese rather than Teresa, I think the little way is key. Again, I could give a whole retreat on the little way, and, and I really love Therese's thought. But the little way. But the fact is, I think most people don't understand what the little way is. When you think of the little way, well, it's doing small things in love. That's important. But that's technically not what the little way is. And I really encourage you to do some reading on Therese. I'm going to suggest a book. I haven't been suggesting books, but I'm going to suggest this book. The book is called Everything is Grace by Brother Joseph Schmidt. Have you read that, sister? It's yeah, it basically takes Therese's works in life and makes it into a biography. And I think Schmidt gets to the heart of what the little way is. I also think that Father Jacques Philippe gets to the heart of the little way in the way of love and trust, which is a smaller book. Uh, I think everything that Jacques Philippe writes is great, and it's basically all the little way, um, but I would suggest those books. But ultimately, little way is not so much about doing small things in love, but learning to accept our weakness. Accept the fact that you're not perfect, that you're going to make mistakes, that you're going to sin. Never make an excuse for it, but learning to accept it and thus becoming more dependent on the Lord and his mercy, rejoicing even in it, rather than pushing ourselves away. I give you a plethora of quotes, but I think this one really, more than any other, gets to the heart of the little way. Because once we do that, once we understand the little way, no matter what sufferings and trials come, you know what we're going to say? I'm weak. I have a hard time handling this. I wish I could do it better. But Lord, you love me still. I'm a little child. And you're not going to let it disturb your peace. You're not going to let you become discouraged or think that God hates you. Listen to what Therese says. Of course... We should like to suffer generously and nobly. We should like never to fall. 
What an illusion. What does it matter if I fall at every moment? In that way, I realize my weakness and the gain is considerable. If you are willing to bear in peace the trial of not being pleased with yourself, you will be offering the divine master a home in your heart. It is true that you will suffer because you will be like a stranger in your own house, but do not be afraid. The poorer you are, the more Jesus will love you. I know that he is better pleased to see you stumbling in the night upon a stony road than walking in the full light of day upon a path carpeted with flowers because these flowers might delay your advance. That is such a radical statement. That's why Therese is a doctor of the church. And that's why we need to listen to this. Because we have this idea, we want to be holy, we never want to make mistakes, and we're going to suffer so wonderfully and nobly. But then we fall, and then it just becomes worse. We complain, we're not perfect, we sin. But Therese is saying, listen, you're never making an excuse for sin, but you've got to learn to accept your weakness, that you are not Jesus, that you are not Mary, that we're human and we're all fallen and have the sufferings in our own way, and the Lord is there to pick us up and that we need to run to him, and that even that our, our sins and our sufferings can become conduits for grace and growth. We don't become saints in spite of our weakness, but because of our weakness. It's that weakness that allows us not to become prideful, the suffering that reminds us that we're human and makes us more dependent upon the Lord. It teaches us humility. That's why Therese is so important, and that's why it's the key becoming the bee and not the poisonous spider. Therese was that. Look at the fruit that she's continued to produce. Look at the kindness and the sweetness of her own disposition, particularly when he was, she was suffering. That's because she understood what it was like to love and to allow the Lord to love her. And so as a result, if we can do these things, ladies, we're going to, and maybe there's a struggle, produce honey. Produce that honey and not that poison. Honey, which is sweet, which is delightful, and which attracts other people. As St. Francis says, De Sales talks about, that we need to be, you're going to attract more people with honey than with vinegar. You're going to attract other people. So if we want people to come into the gospel, they can see you suffering and still being joyful, still smiling, still thinking of others and willing to serve others, that's the honey. It becomes a powerful, powerful tool for evangelization. The spider doesn't evangelize anybody. The bee does, and that's what we're called to be. But it's not easy. It all sounds nice, and you're saying, Father, this is wonderful. I'm levitating. I feel so holy. But it's not easy. It's not easy at all. And so it can be hard to carry that cross. So, so, so what was that, that prayer, the serenity prayer? We pray for the serenity to accept the things we cannot change, but courage to change the things I can, and of course the wisdom to know the difference. So that's what we're going to focus on tomorrow, is courage. The courage it takes to be joyful in the face of the cross. The courage it takes to open up ourselves to love, and the courage it takes to give ourselves fully. So this is your exercise for tonight leading up till tomorrow. The question, I've kind of posed a question each day. Am I or you the spy or the beater, the, the, the spider or the bee? What are we more like? 
Are we more like the spider, alone, isolated, venomous, hateful? Or are we more like the bee, buzzing around, living in community, getting along with others, and producing honey? Number two, if any of the hurts that I talked about or any of the other pains spoke to you, let's begin praying for forgiveness, maybe even calling down blessing on others and asking the Lord to begin or continue that process of healing. And then third and finally, as we celebrate the Feast of Divine Mercy tomorrow, this is all about mercy, learning to receive mercy and to be merciful to others. Let's meditate on that passage from the cross to the resurrection. And to think that we can meditate on the resurrection and the joy and the Lord's mercy and forgiveness, but he had to pass through the cross first. And for us, when we're passing through the cross and we understand that great mystery, always have hope that there will be a resurrection, there will be a sunrise, there will be new life. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, or without end. Amen.